Hi everyone, I'm Ashley Bassett. And I'm Katherine Logan. And welcome to the Sports Docs Podcast. On each episode, we chat about the most recent developments in sports medicine and dissect through all the noise so you know which literature should actually impact your practice. Today, we're coming to you live from the American Orthopedic Society for Sports Medicine annual meeting in Washington, D.C. The AOSSM annual meeting is the premier sports medicine conference each year. Hosting over 3,500 attendees with hundreds of posters and paper presentations, exhibitors, and instructional course lecturers, this year proved to be as spectacular as years past. We were fortunate to have the opportunity to catch up with many of the presenters at the meeting and get their take on some of the hottest topics in sports medicine. Over these seven episodes, we're going to be exploring some of the hottest topics in sports medicine with these experts who are presenting at the AOSSM annual meeting. We are supported by Miyak Orthopedics. Miyak Orthopedics is leading a shift in the treatment of anterior cruciate ligament tears from reconstruction to restoration with the Bear implant. Bridge-enhanced ACL restoration facilitates healing of the torn ACL. Unlike reconstruction, the Bear implant does not require a second surgical wound site to remove a healthy tendon from another part of the leg or the use of a donor tendon. The bare implant acts as a bridge between the two ends of the torn ACL. The surgeon injects a small amount of the patient's own blood into the implant and then inserts it between the torn ends of the ACL in a minimally invasive procedure. The combination of the bare implant and the patient's blood enables the body to heal the torn ends of the ACL back together while maintaining the ACL's original attachments to the femur and the tibia. The bare implant is resorbed by the body as the ACL heals. To learn more about the Bear implant, including clinical study results and instructions for use, visit www.bearimplant.com. We have an awesome guest today. Dr. Scott Rodeo is a professor of orthopedic surgery at the Weill Cornell Medical School and an intending surgeon at Hospital for Special Surgery. He is the head team physician for the New York Giants, co-chief emeritus of the sports medicine and shoulder surface, as well as vice chair of orthopedic research. In addition to that, Dr. Rodeo is also the director of the Center of Regenerative Medicine and is a renowned expert in the field of orthobiologics. So we're really excited to hear more from him about this rapidly growing field. So without further ado, let's get to the exhibit hall. So Scott, thank you so much for joining us today for the special episode of the Sports Docs Podcast live from the AOSSM annual meeting in Washington, DC. Welcome to our show. Thank you, thank you for having me here. Uh, so you were one of the co-chairs of the Biologic Symposium um, I attended uh, mm -hmm. on Wednesday, and you moderated a session titled Point of Care Processing of Autologous Blood Products. Within that session, you spoke about the use of genetically modified human umbilical vein endothelial cells yes. to augment rotator cuff repair. But mm -hmm. uh, before we Did get to that, okay. um, we just wanted to talk a little bit about your interest in this topic, but really biologics in general. Um, how did you initially get interested in this work and a little bit about your inspiration and your mentors along the way? So I've been interested in biologics for quite some time. I, in one of my roles in special surgery is I run a laboratory. Um, I'm co-director of our uh, orthopedic soft tissue research program. So I've worked in the area of, kind of understanding the cellular and molecular mechanisms of soft tissue repair. And that's led us into studying um, techniques for biologic augmentation, in particular cell therapies over the years. So we've studied in the laboratory side, and the goal you know, as a clinician scientist is to translate that to patients. So that's kind of been the, the, the initiation of our, of our pathway. I mean, my mentors have been Russ Warren, Steve Arnosky, Joe Hannafin, and the others at, at HSS and in research that I grew up with. And so we have continued that work, both laboratory work and then linked clinical trials. 
and can you speak a little bit about how you set up your lab and how it works? Do you involve uh, residents, fellows, med students, people trying to get into med school? Sure. Yeah. You know, it takes it can take ten years to really develop a, a robust research program, and the, so I have full-time laboratory technicians that do our histology, our tissue processing for molecular biology analyses, for biomechanics testing. We have postdoctoral surgeons, a number from overseas that work with us. We have post-baccalaureate students, and then there are research fellows. We have residents that are involved. We have medical students who are involved. So there's a staff of about really 12 to 15 individuals in the laboratory. So it takes a lot of time and sort of nurturing to keep it all going. <laughs> And so you've obviously published a lot of research on biologics. We want to dive in a little bit to that today. And we will eventually talk about what you presented on at the Biologic Symposium. Okay. But we want to talk first about overall genetically modified cell-based therapies. So you've you know, released a lot of papers on the use of genetically modified bone marrow-derived MSCs. Can you tell us a bit about what the data shows on that? So this whole area of cell therapy, an area that has tremendous potential, but certainly needs further development. And, and one of the biggest, probably the single biggest challenge in cell therapy is the heterogeneity in these cell formulations, whether it's bone marrow-derived cells or cells from adipose, yeah. or even some of these perinatal sources, amniotic fluid, umbilical cord blood, things like that. They're all really poorly characterized. So the, ability, the, the rationale for using uh, gene therapy techniques was to insert a specific gene that we know has relevance for specific tissue. So for example, we did some work using, some years ago with Larry Gallat in our lab, um, scleraxis. Scleraxis is an important transcription factor in tendon embryology, tendon healing and tendon repair. So we inserted the gene for scleraxis into bone marrow derived cells and evaluated that in an animal model where it has a positive effect. So that's the concept. Similarly, you can insert the gene, say SOX9, you know, a master cartilage gene to try to improve cartilage tissue regeneration. So. Um, great potential, an area that certainly needs further development. To scale it up to clinical translation um, takes further work. Sure. Yeah. Um, so chatting about your presentation, um, which was uh, wonderful, so thank you for doing that on Wednesday. So as we said, genetically modified human umbilical vein endothelial cells, and you were doing that to augment rotator cuff repair. Um, so, tell us a little bit more about the use of the fully differentiated endothelial cells rather than pluripotent um, yeah. MSCs um, derived from the bone marrow and, you know, how you made that choice. Yeah, so, so we've taken a different approach in some of our recent work using, as you say, endothelial cells. So, to, to kind of back up, you know, the whole area of biologics, I would submit to you there's, there's, there's two, you know, whether it's cells or PRP, whatever, um, Two, two goals. One is symptom modification. One is structure modification. So we can improve symptoms. You know, PRP in cell you know, formulations will produce anti-inflammatory mediators and immune modulating proteins that can improve symptoms. But the harder, the bigger goal is can we regenerate tissue? And so that gets to, you know, why we're looking at endothelial cells. So it starts with the concept of intrinsic progenitor cells, which exist in many tissues. So, you know, the cells that we put in, into patients, whether it's, again, bone marrow, adipose, whatever it is, uh, those cells don't engraft. They simply produce a number of signaling molecules that, that, you know, affect the local environment. So, anyway, we know there are intrinsic cells in many tissues, probably pericytes, cells, you know, lining the walls of blood vessels that are intrinsic uh, progenitor cells for that tissue. A lot of laboratory work suggests that those intrinsic progenitor cells are controlled by endothelial cells. So and this is a long answer, but why, this is why we're no, studying great. endothelial yeah, exactly. cells. It's, it's probably endothelial cells in each tissue that produce specific factors that control the intrinsic stem cells in that tissue. And it's tissue-specific, so endothelial cells from liver produce factors that affect or uh, stimulate liver stem cells. Yes. Endothelial cells from lungs stimulate lungs, lung stem cells. So the challenge is how can we, can we produce some uh, population of endothelial cells that could be used 
for, for different applications. So this is working with the group Angel Crying uh, Biosciences, the company that supported this work. I have no other mm-hmm. financial relationship with them. They've this is an investigator-initiated trial. So I wrote the protocol. They've supported the work. They manufacture the cells and produce these cells. So these are endothelial cells, as you say, human umbilical vein-derived cells that are, to make an activated cell population, they are transfected with this specific gene, this E4ORF gene, like, what's that? So it's <laughs> just a gene, it's derived from, from adenovirus, it turns out, but that, when you transfect endothelial cells with this gene, it confers sort of an anti-inflammatory and sort of pro-regenerative activities to, to endothelial cells, and, and it kind of increases their metabolic activity a bit, so they're stable in culture. So we have these cells now, these endothelial cells. They're transfected with this gene that makes them you know, phenotypically stable in culture. So they, you can expand these cells you know, at, at clinical-grade scale. So you can eventually have master you know, vascular cell sem banks. And these, uh, these activated cells, when implanted, the goal is, the, the rationale, they would stimulate the intrinsic progenitor cells that exist in tendon. So then this genetic modification is different than what you did with the bone marrow-derived MSCs. Instead of doing like a metric metallic protease gene or the scleraxis gene, you're just transfecting them with this to stabilize them so they can do their own natural duty. Exactly, exactly. Not that's You hit the nail on the head. We've kind of make an, a, a, a slightly you know, a metabolically active but stable cold, uh, population of, of endothelial cells. And then you ask an important point, kind of distinguishing this from bone marrow MSCs. Probably the biggest difference is these endothelial cells are a purified... Um, well-characterized population of cells. These are manufactured. They're highly, highly purified. In contrast, bone marrow-derived cells, it's, it's a gamish. It is a yeah. very, very heterogeneous <laughs> mixture of cells. We don't really know we're putting in patients, right. frankly, when we use those. Yeah. You know? How did you decide on umbilical veins, endothelial cells? Because you mentioned, like, liver, endothelial cells do this, lung. Right. How yeah. was an umbilical vein chosen? So this is done with scientists at, at Ansari Stem Cell Institute at Weill Cornell in New York City, which is kind of right next door to HSS. So that's where a lot of the basic lab work has been done there, and then we do the animal work. We, they have decided on using human umbilical vein cells because they're available. These are it's a, it's a, an easy source of, um, of endothelial cells, a kind of a generic endothelial cell, if you will, and then once transfected with this gene... I can make you can activate these cells, and so they will have these activities when they're put into a specific tissue. So it's a great question because it's probably context specific. That is, you put these cells in liver, they probably produce different factors. Put them in tendon, they produce other factors. So it needs a lot more work to understand yeah. the basic mechanisms. In fact, one of the, F, the things the FDA always wants is mechanism. Yes. That's lots, sure. of, lots more work. Um, so back to the study itself, what were some of the main findings um, with yeah. regards to the uh, full thickness rotator cuff tears? Sure. Thank you, Catherine. So we just finished a phase one study. It's an FDA. This is done under an IND, investigational new drug. This is you know biologic agent. So we have an IND. So this is phase one, safety and feasibility. And the goal was to see in particular safety. Um, Bottom line is these cells, do, they do seem to be safe. We had no significant adverse events. We used imaging, MRI, and ultrasound um, to carefully evaluate the tissue. So we saw no evidence of any excessive inflammatory response. And then even more importantly for any studies using gene-modified cells, there's certain things have to be done. So we demonstrated cell viability. There's actually 89% was the average cell viability, which yeah. is high. Um, you know, no end, we had to make sure they're all negative for endotoxin at the time of surgery. And then following our patients, at six months and 12 months, we drew blood and made sh- using PCR demonstrated that the transduced cells were no longer there. So they're, they're, they're transient in their, in their, their um, 
their residents, which is good. So their cells aren't there at long term. Number two on the blood test, we looked at replication competent uh, retrovirus to make sure that the retrovirus used to transfect the cells was not present, and it wasn't. And then third is a measurement of panel reactive antibodies, a measure of kind of sensitization to the cells. So sure. of our 20 patients, six were sensitized to HLA, which is probably of no real relevance unless that patient needs eventual like solid organ transplantation, kind of like a blood transfusion. Mm-hmm. So, sure. so it's yeah. really, we've demonstrated the cells can be safe. Next step is to really um, look at efficacy, and, and that would, of course, take a randomized trial. So we talked about cells and testing the cells. Um, how are you delivering those cells to the area of uh, Tierkov, and then how are you keeping them there? Once yeah, them there? yeah, that's a good question. Actually, <laughs> that's always one of the biggest challenges: how do you get them there, and yeah, more importantly, how do you keep them yeah. there? And so, and so we inject the cells with we take uh, blood from the patient. We isolate plasma. Plasma has fibrinogen, so we've got fibrinogen. We mix it with thrombin and calcium chloride to make sort of a clot. So we inject okay. it with thrombin and calcium chloride that makes a clot at the site. So that hopefully keeps it in, in, the, in where we want it to be. So we'll, we, we're injecting at the tendon attachment site, the repair site, and then also in the muscle. Um, so I'll kind of finish the repair. It's just do standard repair, nothing nothing different, and then put a needle into the muscle, one of the tendon repair site, um, close the portals, everything, take the mm-hmm. scope out, drain the fluid, and inject the cells and okay. hope they stay there. <laughs> yeah, for the best. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> um, no, you brought up the, uh, our next question was really about the muscle. So uh, you did inject the muscle. Tell us about why and, you know, what's the goal of that? Why was that so yeah, important? Yeah, Catherine, the, the, the reason we inject muscle is, as you know, one of the challenges in rotator cuff um, you know, pathology is, is change the muscle. Mm-hmm. Atrophy, the fatty infiltration. So not only is the goal to get the tendon to heal to bone, but could we even reverse some of the changes in the muscle there? And so... So we included patients with just that had frankly minimal fatty atrophy. So uh, we don't expect to see much much big change, but potentially these cells could um, either halt or even ideally reverse the atrophy yeah. you see in muscle, which is something that we that's an uns- unsolved problem. Even if we have a quote unquote you know good repair and, and quote unquote healed tendon, right. often the muscle doesn't get better. So that's the rationale to start to see could we affect muscle physiology. Yeah. Was there a, um, uh, you know, did you look at a certain um, uh, level of atrophy that those folks were not able to be included? or was well, Yes, yes. We, so uh, they had to be gutelier two or less, okay. so not, 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 not the advanced yeah. changes. Sure. In some of the other literature you published on the, the genetically modified bone marrow-derived MSCs, yeah. it was also injected into the supraspinatus muscle? It was, muscle? it was. Any changes in the muscle composition or appearance with uh, those? Not, nothing that we no, quantified, okay. not a whole lot. And we in there we used a fibrin glue material back to your very good question asked you about carrier vehicles. We use fibrin glue, um, which is kind of like makes a little bead, and it kind of and, and the cells the cells like fibrin. They're kind of happy in fibrin. They stay viable, yeah. and it kind of localizes the cells to the site. So that would be another potential sort of carrier vehicle. Carrier vehicles are an important part of this. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> important part. Um, so, do you see any application in the non-operative patient outside of the actual repair? Absolutely. And, and, um, great question, Catherine, about non-operative treatment. Could you could you use this in, in say, partial cuff tears? Those are challenging me. You see, we see this all the time, right? These sure. Partial tears, and there's partial tears, and there's partial tears. I mean, right. Some of these are completely <laughs> asymptomatic, um, but some aren't, and some progress. So could you simply inject these cells in the subacromial space? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I wonder about using them as well for meniscus. Could you, same way, same underlying concept, could you try to stimulate the intrinsic progenitor cells that are in many of these tissues? We just, they're quiescent in these right. tissues. How do, you, how do you stimulate them, you know? Yeah. Go ahead. 
I know I was I was actually going to transition us into rehab after yeah. you. So so with biologics, no. I know this is kind of in the initial phase of studying. So you're not doing this in patients yet. But if you're doing biologic injection or augmentation, how do you adjust their rehabilitation? Do you do a period of activity shutdown to let it take yeah. effect? When do you start that? It's a great question, Ashley. I think we frankly don't have good data on to really guide us in what we should do it for rehab. Quite simply, I've not really changed uh, what I've done, whether, you know, clinically now, my own patients, I will occasionally use bone marrow-derived cells and they, you know, massive tears or revision surgery, poor tissue quality, and I don't change what I do rehab. Um, but frankly, we need more information there. And the real question, you know, rehab is, is mechanical load. So the question is, how does mechanical loading affect right. cells and cell biology or PRP? Totally a black box. I think something we really need to start to study. Frankly, maybe in, in in collaboration with our rehabilitation colleagues, really look at this in a rigorous fashion because right now it's, it's really arbitrary. Even like after PRP, people say, you know, rest for two days, rest for three days, rest for seven exactly. days. I mean, it yeah. is like so arbitrary. The reality is if you look for any data to support these recommendations, there's none. It doesn't exist. Yeah, there's Google. You know, yes, then, exactly. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> but at the end of the day, as a clinician, you've got this patient yeah. sitting in front of you. You need to tell them something. <laughs> So, but, and we acknowledge that we need, we need rigorous data. Yeah, so Scott, my background before I went to medical school, I was a physical therapist for seven years. And so that was a lot of my frustration where I felt like it was very hard to get real, our our RCTs were very, very rare. Um, And so I, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about rehab on our podcast because it's a little bit of my sort of pet project. But um, when folks come in my room and I'm doing any sort of biologic and in the non-operative, I am, I'm not very conservative as far as I'm letting them get back. I'm not really restricting their activity, but I do sometimes have patients come in and say, I found something on the internet that says I really need to shut down from anything strenuous for six weeks. And I just, I don't have a reason to sort of agree with that. I don't know if you've kind of come across anything or you have anything more at the uh, cellular level that would make me think differently. Yeah, no, I think I have the same issue, Captain, patients all the time, you know, to, to educate our patients because they come with all sorts of protocols they hear and see and no, no, Dr. So-and-so yeah. told me I need to do this. And it's like, you know, I, I know that I don't know. I'm pretty sure if he doesn't know. I mean, yeah. you know, so <laughs> so I, I think part of our job is to educate our patients, say, listen, there's, there's a lot we don't know. Now, but more specifically, you know, mechanical load has a profound effect on physiology, yeah. obviously, and it's certainly connective tissue. So no doubt the mechanical loading, which again is the rehab, you know, whether it's, it's volume, frequency, intensity of exercise, what exercise you're doing, how, when, that will no doubt affect the biology. But boy, we just don't really, yeah. <laughs> and, and I tend to be, um, yeah, I don't, I don't make much adjustments because I don't know what, what, what to really truly recommend. Well, we've talked a lot about rotator cuff, um, non-operative and operative use of these uh, cell-based therapies. Do you see any other conditions, orthopedic pathology, that may benefit from biologics? I know we talk about augmenting quad tendon injuries and Achilles tendon. Um, where do you see this going? Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, the, again, back to the, the underlying rationale, the, you know, the ability to try to stimulate intrinsic progenitor cells cuts across many tissues. So, for example, could you use these, I wonder about meniscus tissue. Um, muscle, I think, has great potential. We don't have good treat solutions for muscle injury. I take care of uh, a football team in New York. We see lots and lots of muscle injuries where we don't have great solutions for the fibrosis that occurs. Yeah, so that's, I think, a rich area. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Um, and obviously, cartilage repair is a huge black box and, and a huge, huge unmet clinical need. So yeah, I think we need to understand how we can stimulate the intrinsic cells in those other tissues, meniscus, cartilage, muscle, bone, for that matter. So, yes. Just because you brought it up, my uh, my father would be very sad if I didn't say go Giants. So <laughs> great, I like your father already. Yeah. <laughs> Ashley will, you know, she'll 
I'm, a, I'm an Eagles fan. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, Eagles, a small team somewhere south of us. Yeah, I've heard exactly. Of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're finally good for the first time in uh, Yeah, they're very good. Years. Unfortunately, <laughs> they're very good. I know. Awesome. Uh, but I think the last thing we just really wanted to end on is uh, what advice are you giving to early career surgeons in the sense of biologics? It is so vast now. It's huge. Yeah. So yeah. I think... You know, if you don't get a lot of exposure to it in your um, residency or your fellowship, it just sort of feels like this huge black box. Like, where do people, where should people start? Yeah, great question. I think you know, biologics. I would submit to you honestly, what orthoplasty was to orthopedics in the '70s and '80s, a biologist could be in the next decade. So it's here. It's not going anywhere, but it needs much further development. Um, I think I tell patients and my colleagues and, and our trainees, um, tremendous potential, but a lot of us probably not yet ready for prime time. So what does that mean? Study it you know, rigorously. I mean, patients are going to come to you. They want PRP and yeah. cells and things. And, and they're probably reasonable enough to do. They're safe. But, and it's a big but, I would say put your patients into a clinical registry. Collect data. Ideally, if you can take a small aliquot, a half cc, whatever you're putting the patient, store it in the laboratory. Eventually, if we can identify what are the, the markers of purity or potency or biologic activity, some things we can measure. Sure. Because, the, again, back to the point I made earlier, the biggest Probably the single biggest challenge in this area is the heterogeneity. You know, mm-hmm. if you give a drug, you know what drug, you know what concentration, obviously. Here we have yeah. no clue. We're putting in the patients. So this area, patients will want these treatments, and I think that's reasonable to do it, but do it in a rigorous fashion. Collect clinical data. If you can collect a specimen that we can eventually, ideally, our goal in our center at HSS is to measure the composition and biologic activity of all these different formulations and then correlate that with the patient's clinical or imaging outcomes so we can eventually figure out what is the best formulation for, for muscle, for tendon, for ligament, for bone? Because clearly one size doesn't fit all. So, so for your trainees, I think um, embrace this area, learn the science, be open-minded, and really, but study your patients carefully. Great advice. That's wonderful advice. Well, thank you so much for taking thank the you. time to join us today. This was a fantastic discussion. We know you're extremely busy, and so we really appreciate you. No, thanks for having time. me. Yeah, thank no, you. Great. I learned a lot. Thank you so much. Right, thank you. Awesome. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sports Talks. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. Make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date on all things sports medicine. Exciting announcement, we are also now on YouTube. You can find links to all of our social channels and our contact information on our website, www.thesportstalkspod.com. We love to hear from you.